Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pause at this time and ask that you help us to center our hearts, to focus our attention on what you have to say to us today, to clear our minds from distraction, and to listen with open ears and with open hearts to your word as it is read. And as the word is read, Lord, we pray that you bless the reading and the hearing of it and that through the power of your spirit, the words will somehow touch us in a new and meaningful way and shape us to be more like Christ through them. Bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. Our scripture today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we've been studying the book of Acts, we've been talking about how it's not only a... um, a historical account of the early church and how the church sort of came into being. 
uh, how it was, how it grew. But we are also noticing that it's a blueprint for what the church should look like. And, and I hope that uh, so far in this study we've come to the point where we can, we can look at this and say, yes, we notice there is a lot of useful information here in this book of Acts to show us how we should be uh, living out the mission of Jesus Christ and the world around us. One of the things that you may have noticed up until this point, uh, if you haven't noticed it uh, in Acts, you've probably noticed it in other places of the scripture, is that God is very concerned with groups of people. Uh, whenever the word is proclaimed in Acts, it's, it's, it's as if it's being told to uh, hundreds of people at a time, it seems like. And then in the, the few circumstances where it's told to an individual, that individual immediately goes and, and makes more disciples of people around them. But this isn't something just contained in Acts. This is all throughout the scriptures. When God speaks to, to people in the Old Testament, he's, he's addressing the nation of Israel, right? He's, he, he, even when he uh, makes direct contact with Abraham or with Isaac or with Jacob, it's in the light of, I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will be great. There will be a people to come from you. And throughout the Old Testament, God is talking to Israel as a nation. He speaks to uh, the prophets for the sake of the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, he speaks to the church. He's speaking to a group of people constantly. Even Jesus, when he called his followers, he called them to become a group, a group of disciples. And yes, he, ca- he had individual encounter- encounters with people, but he always invited them to join the group, to join his followers afterwards. So even though there was this, there's this uh, implied individual um, relationship with God, this individual relationship with Christ, there is also an invitation to, to become part of something bigger, to be, become part of a community of faith or a community of believers. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. Even Paul, when he's writing his letters throughout the New Testament, he's writing to groups of believers. He's writing to the church in Rome or the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus. Um, and, and when he does write individual letters to Timothy or to Titus, it's telling them how they should be teaching the church, how they should be teaching groups. So we see that, that salvation is a very communal thing. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if one person is saved or one person comes to know Jesus, the entire group comes to know Jesus or or the entire group experiences salvation. But what I am saying is that once we do come to Jesus, once we do enter into that relationship, God desires for us to be in relationship with other people who are in that relationship. And that's been his plan all along. Why is that? It's because we're better together, because we strengthen and encourage and support each other. As the book of Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. Uh, Tim Keller once said that Christians commonly say they want a relationship with Jesus, that they want to get to know Jesus better, but that they'll never actually be able to do that if they're trying to do it all alone. He says, you must be deeply involved in the church and Christian community with strong relationships of love and accountability. Only if you are a part of a community of believers seeking to resemble, serve, and love Jesus will you ever get to know him and grow in his likeness. 
You can't live the Christian life without a band of Christian friends, without a family of believers in which you find a place. Now, there was a point in my life where I did not believe that at all. Like so many people my generation, and, and, and older and younger than me too, but, but particularly it seems like in my generation there's a lot of people who, who say, I can have a relationship with God all on my own. I can have a relationship with Jesus all by myself. I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to be a part of a, a faith community. I don't need other people. I can do this on my own. But the truth of the matter is that doesn't work. Because there's going to be times where you get discouraged. There's going to be times where you are weak. There are going to be times where you stumble. There's going to be times where you might rejoice and you have no one to share it with. We need each other. We support each other in the community of faith. And that's why God always addresses groups of believers. Our salvation is communal. I mentioned that the book of Proverbs says iron sharpens iron. But the book of Proverbs also talks a lot about the company we keep. And how the people that we are around influence us for better or for worse. I was fortunate enough to grow up with parents who who hammered this into my head. Uh, from an early age, and I can look back on times in my life where I was doing all right. And when I see those times, I, I say, well, I was hanging out with some good folks then. I had some good friends. Unfortunately, there were a lot of times in my life where I wasn't doing all right. And I can remember the, the rascals I was running with at the time then, and they weren't doing me any good. And I probably wasn't doing them any good. But that's how it works. We, the company we keep influences us, and we influence the company that we keep. I had a friend in, in the ninth grade. His name was Mitchell. And uh, in the ninth grade, uh, especially for boys, at least at the high school I went to, um, everybody cusses. That's, that's just what you do. You're, you're expanding your vocabulary is what you're doing. You're, you're learning all these new words and how to use them, and so... It was, uh, we just thought it was a real educational experience, I guess. And uh, in the ninth grade, everybody talked uh, really inappropriately. But there was this one guy named Mitchell I knew, and, and he did not say cuss words at all. And I thought it was the weirdest thing when I was 14, 15 years old. But I liked hanging out with Mitchell. He was a good guy. He was a good friend. And, and I liked the fact that he didn't have to, to use all these words that, that so many others of us thought we were so cool for using. And I asked him one day, I said, Mitchell, um, I've noticed that, that you don't ever cuss. Is there a reason for that? And, and I'll never forget his answer. He said, well, I just don't see the need to. And I thought that was, well, that's cool. Well, a year went by, and in the 10th grade, me and Mitchell were on what they call separate teams, I guess. They put you in different class groups. And so uh, in the 10th grade, I didn't have any classes with Mitchell, didn't have lunch with him, never saw him. And uh, about halfway through the year, we went on a field trip to Westville. And it had been several months since I saw him, and, and so I was glad to see him and looking forward to the chance to hang out with him. And I noticed he was just cussing, left and right. Just dropping them like flies. And I asked him uh, after an hour or two, I said, when, when did you start talking like this? And he said, oh, well, you know, this is the new me. This is the new. And what it was was he was now hanging out with people who spoke that way. And it influenced him. And as strong as he was in his conviction that he didn't need to do that, 
It was only a matter of time, since he was isolated, since he was the only one who had that value, that standard, it was only a matter of time before everyone around him changed him. And that's what's happening in the church right now. The culture is changing us rather than the church influencing the culture. And part of the reason for that is that we have this individual mindset. We don't realize that we're all in this together. We can strengthen each other. Instead, we want to be our own individual person with our own individual decisions, our own individual uh, uh, convictions. And when we do that, we're liable to be influenced by the outside world. Uh, George Barna, who, who uh, founded the Barna Group, a research group for uh, the evangelical trends and influence on American Christianity, he said that the Christian church is struggling to influence the nation's culture simply because believers think of themselves as individuals first and Americans second and Christians third. And until that prioritization is rearranged, the church will continue to lose its influence. Now think about that for a moment. Are we guilty of that? Are we guilty of thinking about ourselves, seeing ourselves as individuals first? And then behind that, American citizens. And then behind that, Christians. Because that's completely backwards. When we submit our lives to Christ, when we become a new creation, when we uh, enter a relationship with Jesus, we become a part of something much greater. And our identity is rooted in Christ and his kingdom and his church, which is his body. We are no longer lone wolves. We are in it together. You might be listening to all this and saying, well, that's, that's great, but what does this have to do with the passage we read. What does this have to do with anything that we just read about Paul and Silas? Well, I believe that is the uh, central theme of what's going on here. Remember, Paul is a community person. Paul is always writing to communities, to churches. He made it his life's work to go establish faith communities, to establish churches in other countries. He had his conversion on the Damascus Road, and after he did, he, he could have gone off and just become a hermit. He could have just gone off, returned back to work, put his nose to the grind, and then believed in Jesus on the side in an individual way. But he couldn't. He decided, this is so real to me, I need to go make groups of other believers. And he became a community person. And this passage says that about him. First of all, Paul was plugged into a community of believers. He was with Barnabas, and then he was with Silas. And then he was with T Timothy. And we know he was with Luke because the, the passage here is in the first person, and Luke wrote the passage. So Paul is with a group of believers. And Luke's telling the story, and he says, we were going around sharing the gospel with other people, trying to, to engage the community. And then this woman, or this girl, this slave girl who was possessed by a spirit started following us around. How did Paul end up in prison? He did it by delivering that girl from an oppressive community. It says that she was part of, of a community that owned her, that exploited her, that used her, her demon possession for their monetary gain. And when Paul delivered that spirit, he freed her from an oppressive community, 
from an oppressive and, and, and exploiting group of people. And then they were angry, and then they had him thrown in prison. Look at how many groups are in this passage. There's, there's Paul and his crew. There's the, uh, the slave girl's owners and oppressors. There's the magistrates that they bring them before. There's the crowd that turns on them. And then they end up in prison, and, and it talks about the prisoners. So everywhere Paul goes, he's in a group of people, all these pockets of people. And then something miraculous happens. An earthquake comes, knocks the chains off their feet, and they have the opportunity to leave. But they don't. Why? Because Paul isn't thinking about himself. He realizes this isn't just about him and his physical freedom. He's there to offer real freedom, spiritual freedom, to other people. And so they stay. Even though the chains are off their feet, they stay. Because Paul understands that he has the opportunity to build another faith community. The jailer comes up to him and says, What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, there's some misunderstanding about that verse. Some people take that to mean, if you believe, then your whole family is going to be saved. I don't think that's what Paul was saying. He was saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the same is true for your family. And so what Paul was doing was saying that you can come to salvation through belief in Jesus, and your family can too, and then Paul was giving him a charge. If you believe this, if your life has changed, then it's also your responsibility to go share that faith with your family and give them the same opportunity. You see, Paul wasn't just looking out for himself. And Paul wasn't just concerned about offering salvation to one person. Paul wanted to build a community of faith around that jailer. And he was pointing out, you're not alone. You have a family. You have a house. And they can all come to salvation too. You can be a part of a community of faith. What Paul was doing, sometimes we call it disciple-making, but really what Paul was doing was he was making a disciple-maker. He was, he was offering the gospel in a way that didn't just end with that person. He was offering the gospel in a way that that person would go and offer the gospel to his family. J.D. Walt, in a devotion I read recently, uh, the, the New Room uh, Website was, was talking about cookies. He said, if you had a cookie recipe and you wanted everybody in the world to eat that cookie, your secret recipe, would you try to cook cookies for the entire world? No. What you would do is you would train several people to be able to, to bake those cookies and you would tell them that they each need to train people. And then it would be, it would be like a pyramid. It would grow out. And, and more and more people would know how to do it, and then eventually everybody would taste your cookie recipe. It's the same way with making disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples. The mission statement of the United Methodist Church is to make disciples. But we shouldn't be just focused on making disciples. We should be making disciples who make disciples. And the only way we can do that is by recognizing we are a community within a community. And our community can influence the greater community. You see, if we go and we target one person, and we try to share the gospel with that one person, we may or we may not be successful. But when we realize 
that we are a part of something bigger. And our community of faith tries to influence the secular community around us. Many, many people within that community may come to Jesus through that. So Paul and his crew wound up in prison because they had set an oppressed slave free from a community that was exploiting her. And he stayed in prison to offer a jailer spiritual freedom. But not just that, but to also establish a community of faith around that person. Our country, our culture, desperately needs a Christian influence. But that can't happen if we are individually minded, if we are only thinking in terms of our individual salvation, our individual relationship with Jesus Christ. Those things are important, but they have to grow and be cultivated within a faith community. Salvation doesn't happen in a vacuum. A relationship with Jesus Christ can't happen with a vacuum. At the same time, the deterioration of a culture, a community, a nation, that doesn't happen as an isolated incident. It happens as a group activity. But fortunately, God can redeem a nation, a culture, a church as a group activity. But we must be willing to recognize ourselves, not just as individuals. It's not just about us. But we are a body of believers, a community of faith, living in a culture that needs to be influenced by the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we ask uh, right off that you forgive us for all the times that we've only considered ourselves, that we've only considered our own conditions. We ask that you do strengthen our individual and personal relationship with you, but Lord, we also ask that you do that uh, within the community of faith, that you help us grow in our personal relationship by growing us closer to each other. And helping us understand that we are part of something much greater. Lord, we ask that you equip us and help us to become your hands and feet in the greater community. And help us to realize we can only do that by joining together. Give us the wisdom. Give us the heart. Give us the patience and endurance to do this for the sake of your kingdom. And not just for our own sakes. Because, Lord, it's not just about us. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Please turn with me in your United Methodist hymnal to page 12.